0: Hello and welcome to the Team GB podcast, The Moments That Made Me, in association with the University of Hull. I'm Radzi and on this podcast we look to find out about the unique moments in the lives of the nation's most incredible Olympic athletes. Each week an Olympian will bring three personal moments that they feel have ultimately made them the athletes and people that they are today and we want to uncover what makes these remarkable individuals tick and hear those stories straight from the source. By the way, if you do enjoy this episode or any from this series, please subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcasts from. Feedback, especially the good kind, is very much welcome, but we'd also love to hear from you as well. Now, we kick off the series with a bang. I'm talking about Roa Peter Reed. Pete's story is one of the most remarkable out there and he's joined us to talk through his illustrious career, his three Olympic golds across three Olympic Games. But first up was the spinal stroke that he suffered last year, which left him paralysed from the chest down. But his attitude and mindset is truly awe-inspiring, and his humility and level-headedness It quite frankly just blew me away and I hope it does to you too. It's just worth knowing this was recorded back in June during lockdown while Pete was in Loughborough going through an intensive rehab programme. Let's get into it now. Enjoy. Pete, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I'm genuinely phenomenally excited to talk to you because your journey is just, it's beyond all comprehension, But even trying to introduce you, whether we talk about the fact you're an Oxford graduate, whether we talk about your 10 year career in rowing, whether we talk about your three Olympic gold medals, it's so tough to know where to start, but I'll just begin by saying, we're all in
1: lockdown. How's your lockdown going? Uh, it's so, so nice to speak to you. Lockdown's okay. It's, um, it's tough for everybody, but we're trying to make the very best of it as we always do, but I'm, I'm well, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping well. And thanks for that warm introduction.
0: Your career, as I alluded to, three Olympic gold medals, the, I'd love to talk to you about what happened after that as well. Your three moments that have really made you. But first of all, when you look
1: back on your career, how much do you think you remember in detail? It's it's hard to remember everything. And I got some great advice right at the beginning of my career from m- one of my athlete mentors, a guy called Steve Williams, who's a double Olympic champion. And he he really looked out for me at the beginning. But his advice was, as we were um, as we crossed the line in Beijing for my first Olympic gold, he sat behind me and he said remember everything so remember details pick out details smells colors of jackets and it really helps you hone that and being in a team sport you get to share those memories and and that yes. uh, your teammates and your coaches and the staff fill in the gaps so I think I'm all right I think we've got a story to tell.
0: Well people are going to try and put that to the test with five questions about your career and see how much of that colour you can remember. Are you up for it? Yeah, let's do it. Question number one. How many World Championship medals have you won in your
1: career? I've won eight. And I, I wish they were all gold. I've got, um, <laughs> I've got five, five golds um, and three World Championship silver medals. How lucky is that? All cracking crews.
0: Absolutely. Question number two. In 2005, you won the boat race as part of the Oxford crew. As I mentioned, you're an Oxford graduate. What was
1: unique about that crew? At the time, we were the heaviest crew of full time. Is that the one? Yes, uh, exactly. for a second, you didn't know, did you? No, I, didn't. I was thinking. Yeah, we were the heaviest crew, but there's a crew that they drank up the following year. <laughs> they made sure it was, it was really down to the wire, but we were naturally big old boys. I won't take it away from them, but um, <laughs> yeah, our crew, I, I was very average size, they were monsters. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well, it,
0: even at six, six, you felt average?
1: yeah very much so yeah they I was um average size in the boat they were they were big old boys, yeah, fond memories from two thousand
0: and five yeah I'll bet um question number three, two of two so far, between o five and o seven, the British men's four were unbeaten in how many races
1: twenty seven
0: Oh, nailed on, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'm pretending uh, like that was hard. I, I think about all the time. Those were the years, 27 races. <laughs> yeah, 20, well, yeah, 27. Cool, thanks. It's, it's it's incredible
0: to think. I mean, you if you were to apply that to another sport, you'd you'd regard that as a great. You say, I'm an Arsenal fan. We were unbeaten for 49 games, and I think about that as being the golden era of Arsenal. You were part of the golden era of Rome in that very specific time.
1: We had an amazing run. Um, yeah, really, really good times. And I can remember some particular races where we were a length up after 250 meters. You know, just just absolutely flying. Can I can I say the crew members of that early boat? Please. So do. I've already mentioned Stevie Williams, but Alex Partridge and Andy Hodge. That those three guys and me made up that first Coxless Four with my introduction to the team. And you know, I've, I've been lucky my whole life, but jumping into your first senior crew with those three and then going and stomping all over the world. It was, it was a time of pure bliss and innocence. Yeah, it was great.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, question four, with three or three so far. In 2009, EIS, English Institute of Sport, claimed you had the largest lung capacity on record. To the nearest 100 millilitres, what was that capacity? So I, I hope they've got their numbers right. 11.68. Not even to the nearest hundred, that's the nearest 10 millimetres, and you are nailed on, 11.68 litres. Yeah. And, and also, I've got asthma, so I, I envy that kind of lung capacity. I think I'd need about seven breaths to equal one of yours. Um.
1: Well, so, I, we're socially distanced, we'll do a fist bump. I've got asthma as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I've got asthma as well, but, but I mean, but two big bags in my chest, I'll make them work for me.
0: Yeah, correct. Um. Final question: Four of four so far. Can you make it one hundred percent? You've achieved three golds across three Olympic games, which is phenomenal. In Beijing, in London, in Rio, helping the British rowing squad to top the medal tallies at each of those three games. But how many medals did Great Britain achieve in rowing across those three games? So to parenthesize there's some number of medals across the three games in row, just start
1: adding it up and see, see Please it. Please
0: do if you get close, I'll be impressed. Let's go for 12. So you'll be impressed at this. It's 20, really. 20, yeah. So in Beijing, it was six.
1: I, I'm sorry, everybody. I was put under time pressure. <laughs> I, I, I ran out of fingers. I ran out of fingers. What am I going to do? Um, it's that's amazing. Phenomenal.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's six in Beijing, nine in London, and five in Rio, which is just incredible and a testimony is just how dominant we were.
1: My goodness me, it's it's mind blowing. So being part of such a successful team, and you know, okay, I got my numbers wrong, but I, I know how good the depth was in the teams. So I think there was a there was a bit of a changeover from the the Sydney two thousand and the Athens two thousand and four era where we had the very very best in the world and then there was quite a big drop-off in 2008, 2012, 2016. There weren't weak crews. I mean across the board any event, any discipline, women, men, lightweights were just so strong and it made our our team very very powerful. I know it's made me proud to be part of it. 20, I mean I'm ashamed I didn't know but um, I'm not surprised that's awesome.
0: I think it sort of speaks volumes about the strength and depth that we had then that you almost forget the number of medals because it really was something special and I look forward to talking to you about that shortly but yeah. th- on this podcast we're focusing on the moments that made you and what I'd love to start by doing is talking about your moment that came after your rowing career and actually only happened last year and for me my, my respect for you just grew astronomically and to see the challenge that you face every single day and with that in mind, could we touch on one of those moments? Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, I'll stop me if the, the details get too gory, but um, it's really cathartic for me to talk about it as well. So far fire away. What do you want to know?
0: Thank you. So one of those moments I know for you is when you, you ultimately suffered paralysis from the chest down. And I, I guess if you were a rugby player or a jockey, you might think that comes as, path of the course that somebody may have to face that but not somebody that's a rower and not somebody that's as big and as strong as you and a marine and all of those things that I mentioned and yet that's something that you face every day could you, could you talk about the moments leading up to when that happened yeah
1: um thank you uh, and it it is a shock so I had a spinal stroke um the moments leading up to it so I was uh, I was on a course and And in uniform, the co- it's, it's called a beat up course for preparing for something called the All Arms Commando course, which is a it was my opportunity to learn learn about the raw marines side of tactical military um, and professionally, it would have been fantastic to get back into my career to understand different cultures in, in our service um, and to link people together to help out with high performance and career management. That's what, what I was doing and, and while I was there. And it's very physical. And I, I don't mind telling you I was thriving. I mean, just flying through the physical things, l- absorbing everything that I didn't know. I was in amongst brilliant guys. The day before I had any symptoms, I was literally running up and down mountains with Bergens on my back and and thriving. No problems whatsoever. And and, and nice to be doing something different. Um, the morning I... I did an assault course and it was uh, like you might see on TV. Anyone can search for raw Marine assault courses and see the sorts yeah. of things we were doing. Um, and it was intense and fast and exciting. And I'd encourage anybody to look it up and, and get enthusiastic about it. But um, immediately afterwards, I got some pain in my chest um, and I've had pains in my chest before. It felt like a rib stress fracture, but immediately my, my legs started to feel numb and and my gate, my walking gait was a bit funny and I had pins and needles. And, and the, key, the key thing here was that I couldn't pee. You know, I, I tried to go for a pee and uh, and it was a red flag, so th- they're not peeing. So I went into hospital um, in Derriford uh, to have a look. We, we'd carry on through anything. you know? I, Initially I tried to just shrug it off, um, but the doc sent me to have a scan and it showed that I had um, a compromise in my spinal cord. Um, and so I stayed in hospital. They kept me in overnight for observations. It showed some quite good improvements. So I was still walking, but I was like Bambi on ice. And then a couple of days later, I had the set in the same area of pain, but a, a extreme pain, like extraordinary, which I later found out was that's um, the cells starving of oxygen As as then the paralysis got very serious. So by that point, my partner Jeannie was with me. Um, we were nervous, but I thought, we'll we'll get back onto that course and I'll be walking again, no problem. And then I felt the, the strength just drain out of my legs. So it started off, I was wiggling my foot and, and Jeannie was hanging onto my foot and it was just, it went down to a slow stop. And then I couldn't feel my legs. Then I couldn't move at all and right up to my chest. So um, after the pain subsided, I tried to sit up and couldn't. I grabbed the bed frame in hospital and pulled myself up and then immediately fell forwards like a rag doll, like terrifying, utterly terrifying, and fell backwards again. And and you just think, what on earth has happened? What 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 just happened? And I think through, um, at the time I've been bomb-proof, through my career you just think you're going to get better and then there's this process of it sinking in and learning more and doctors there and procedures it's it's a scary thing um uh, and a very it's it's a one in a million thing you know just just bad luck i was fit healthy strong it can happen do you know what actually caused it Uh, no we don't The, the doctors have got um They've got theories and ideas. I mean, it could be compression um, of discs on that on that course, could just be bad luck. Um, it could be uh, an impingement or a bleed, but we don't we don't really know and perhaps we'll never know. The advice I got from doctors was, it's better that we don't know. So for for um, weeks through the initial trauma and it got pretty bad at one stage, they were doing test after test after test and everything was coming back negative, but that's good because if you're, testing for, if you're testing for cancer, then you find out what caused it. And, uh, and by the way, you've got cancer. So it's good that things are coming back right negative. If we don't ever know, you know, sometimes people have spinal strokes, um, but, but there's, some, there's some trauma to my spine. Um, and I think we'll just have to put it down to, well, that's bad luck. The good thing here is, you know, I've thought about it quite a lot, of course, I think at least it wasn't me coming off my motorbike, you know, or 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 something that I'd done. I've been so so reckless in my life and so lucky, you know, I've put my legs through their paces, I've climbed on cliffs, I've I've abused my body in a brilliant way and taken risks and and it wasn't one of those things. I think that would be very it would be harder for me to live with if I'd just been stupid. Um but I think easier that it's bad luck and I think perhaps I had a chat with Jeannie about this and we both agreed, you know, thank goodness it's me. I I feel like I can handle this well. Um, I've got all the tools and all the support to make the very best of it. Um, If it is bad luck and I take it away from someone else, it's not just lip service, that's all right with me.
0: What what an incredible sentiment. Thank you also for your honesty. Kind of as you were speaking, I was thinking about my granddad who lost his leg in the Second World War, Um, and he went from essentially a hard bloke, a guy from Dundee in Scotland, hard working class, lost his leg, um, progressively had to have it amputated higher and higher and higher. Artificial leg that he had was very, very basic back then. Um, And he spoke to me about the fact that he felt that his place in society had really come down, that he didn't have the place that he once felt that he had. Is is that something that, that you felt, being sort of a six foot six alpha male, and the fact that you might have to move in a wheelchair perhaps makes you feel
1: that your place has changed at all? Um, yes, I think to, to a certain extent, and I think if, if you're having bad days, then those things can get on top of you. Um, so initially, you go you go through this process. Initially, I thought, um, of course, I'll get back to full strength. I'll get back on that course and get my green beret. And then you scale back and you think actually just walking again would be good. And then you think just standing again. I mean, let's let's be optimistic but realistic. And then the other part of your brain is I'm not six foot six anymore. You know, I'm used I'm used to being head and shoulders taller than everyone else, and and looking a particular way, and being able to and being a performance athlete. You know, being right. And the listeners will forgive me, you know, top 1% of fitness and physical capability. And now I'm bottom 1%. I know I'm I'm right down the other end of the bell curve for the, for internationally. And that's shocking. And it's just something that you need to get your head around. You know, I'm, I'm lucky in many ways. I'm still Pete Reed. My head still works. It's it's still as average as ever as I I put out um, early on, but I'm still me. And if I if I start le- letting things like how I look get on top of me, and I think that's poison. To dwell is poison. Looking back and comparing myself to the the Olympic champion physiology, Pete Reed, that'll that'll really get the better of me. And it's it's actually it's quite easy not to. You know, I'm I'm not. I'm happy enough, you can't see the wheelchair. I'm looking down at the moment, looking at my legs and they have, they've reduced in size and they're looking pretty limp at the moment. But every day I do have a sense of achievement from small things. Um, so from getting into my standing frame or, I mean, initially it was putting my own pants on, you know, little things like that, or picking up something that had dropped on the floor and not having to call the nurse about it. And as the weeks go on, I get these daily satisfactions that are same as, the same as personal bests on the rowing machine or lifting a personal best in weight, but now they're just picking something up. And as long as you don't compare yourself to how strong you were before, as long as you compare yourself to yesterday, then that's a huge win every day, which which is actually makes me feel pretty good.
0: Pete, let's ask, where does your strength come from? Because I, I think that If I was in even half the situation you were in, I think I'd be really at my lowest ebb. But you're articulately communicating the situation you're in really objectively, very positively, but not sort of falsely optimistically. There just seems this incredible aura that you've got,
1: and I'm just wondering where where it came from. Thanks. Uh, So where did it come from? I think, so when this first happened, I kept getting messages on social media that I put positive content out, and I don't know what I use it for. Just telling my journey and trying to help out a few people because I've had a load of support over the years. So trying to give a bit back. And it is all positive. And people were saying, it's okay, you can feel down. And I do have blue days. I'm not I'm not um, a robot. I, I am human and have feelings. Um, But I, actually, I've been all right. And I think there's a, a couple of things. I, I was very lucky with my upbringing. My, my parents... I feel taught me very, very well, which I, you never appreciate at the time when you're a kid, but as you're growing up, you realize how lucky you were. Um, and I learned the value of hard work and then and then joining the Royal Navy, um, learning about hard work again, going to Oxford, uh, and then being in the rowing environment, being back in the military. This This journey of life is I've constantly been surrounded by amazing people. And this okay, this one's happened to me and and thank you for your comments. If I think to any of my peers in the Navy or in rowing, they would handle themselves just as well as I would if i think um andy hodge if if this had happened to him, he would have been bomb proof and I think it's just a product of my training you know i've spent I've spent twenty years in the Navy and then a good 15 in, in international rowing. Uh, the key thing is and what makes me a little bit different is I'm very comfortable with failure. Very, very comfortable. I sort of I worked it out chatting to some of the patients in the spinal unit in Salisbury where my whole life has been daily fails and even, even sessions fail. So no stroke would ever be perfect. There'd always be someone stronger than you on the ergo next to you. The weights you were lifting, you could have better technique. And that was, that's all right with me. I mean, I, I lap that up. I'm hungry for knowing what the weaknesses are because then you get to improve and then you get to suck in information from other people and other experts. So now every day is failure and everything I do is failure, but for a lot of other people on the spinal unit, that really got them down. You know, they'd fail and it just, it would be a setback too much. And I think I'm very good at, and I look forward to that. I think that's it.
0: Do you know the funny thing was, before you said that, my next question was going to be, have you ever failed? Because when you look at your CV, it's almost, as far as I'm concerned, it looks pretty flawless. You You went to the finest university, You went to the finest military service. You then represented Great Britain at the highest level, at the elite level, performed at the highest level, won the highest accolades. But that's really interesting that you actually, within that, have had these micro
1: failures that have almost defined the success. You've just given a few peaks and a few highlights, Um, but that's what people see. I think, um, I won't say I, but we were very good at performing at the right times. And, and actually away from the spotlights is where you go through the struggle and hardship. And I think right back to very early, early on in my life, my, my parents would take me and my brother and my sister to the Lake District or Snowdonia hiking. And so from very early on, we'd be hiking up mountains. And of course it's nice to be on the top of a mountain, but actually you learn that the most, in, the most fun part and the most rewarding part is the climbing up to the top. And it's, and that's the most important thing in life as well. It's even Olympic gold medals. They're cool and they're nice to show people. But the the teamwork and the challenge and the improving, that's the fun bit. And seeking out challenge and that being its own reward and being comfortable with failure means even when you're in a trough, you've got more of an opportunity to climb out of it. And if you surround yourself with good people and that, that attitude, then all of your life is good. Um, and I think now with three goals at three Olympics, it's funny saying that, but um, it means that I get to look back and be content. And I look back with perhaps with rose-tinted glasses, but it doesn't matter what the result is. If you're, if you're happy with your result, if someone can ask you, how did you do? And you say... I came fourth, but actually that's really good. If you're proud of it and you did everything, you can look back with rose tinted glasses and actually realise the struggle and the training with great people is the most important part, even of an Olympic journey.
0: I've really taken so much on from what you said because, so I've worked in TV, prior to working in TV, it took me three years of working for free. And when I got there, I remember people say, how did you have your lucky break? And I used to always think as a society, we focus on destinations and not journeys. You see whoever it is that is your hero and you think it happened overnight. You don't know that Usain Bolt left home at 12 years old and trained full-time essentially as an athlete. Same with Rafa Nadal, same with Andy Murray. We just see the destination of the Wimbledon final, the Olympic final. But the fact that you're saying that the journey isn't only the bit that gets you to the
1: destination,
0: it's actually the fun bit. There's a lot to say, there's a lot to take away from that.
1: Yeah. The, f- the fun bit is, I won't say being in pain, but, but working hard. Like when you've got blistered hands and you've just come in from a row where it's horizontal hail, I still remember those rows like I remember Olympic finals and crossing lines. So, and big crowds at Dorney Lake. But we had rows at Cavisham Lake, which the, when the wind was coming in and it was horrendous and the crew were, we were laughing we, because we were so miserable. And I, I remember the crews, I remember what was said, and we just had such a good time for so long. And even when it was proper graft, at least we were in it together. And you, you learn about um, real work. And when you realize that hard work is its own reward, that it's not, it's not the gold medal that's the reward, it's the doing the hard work at the time of doing it, then, I mean, that will see you through anything. And it will actually get you to the gold medal as well.
0: Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I hope people listening to this take as much away from this as I am. Um, But could we go back to another one of your moments that made you 2005 and winning your first world
1: championship? Yeah. um, I'm glad you mentioned that one because that is a, a really big deal. I think before then, I hadn't won very much at all. I started rowing, I picked up an oar for the first time at the University of the West of England in 2001, September 2001. So within, I remember the commentator saying this, within four years, before four years was up, I'd won a senior world championship. And and I don't mind telling you and everyone else, I got so lucky, you know, every single boat I was in, I was the worst in the boat. And (laughs) I I, I really was. So, So from... The novice crew and I was the worst technician. And as soon as you get coached and become the best, you just move into the next crew. So you're you're always learning good habits. Um, so I progressed through uh, to the under twenty three national team, then to Oxford, and was rowing with better guys. So always just learning, learning, learning. Um And then it got me to rowing with um Alex, Steve, and Andy, who I've mentioned already in my first World Championships in Gifu, in Japan. Thinking, I'm. I I was just thinking, this is amazing. This is, we we were undefeated that season. We'd scared the opposition. We still had a fight against the Dutch crew in 2005, but I thought I'm in Japan. And and in the best shape of my life. I was aged uh, 24, 24 then. And I just thought, this is what I want to do. I I loved, I love fighting it out on the lake. I love racing. I was so competitive. I I was feeding off my crewmates. I really, really looked up to Stevie Williams. I really admired Alex and Andy. And I just thought, how have I managed to get myself into this crew? These guys are incredible. And we just we just killed it. Um, And when you become world champion for the first time, never in my dreams did I think I'd be a world champion. You know, I was always rubbish at sport at school. And and all of a sudden you're the union flag's being raised. I was in the military, so standing to attention because that's what we do. The national anthem plays and you stand to attention and um, just just on cloud nine. It was brilliant.
0: You mentioned before about the best bit is, if you like, the journey. When you're actually in a final and you're stirring down the barrel of goals, when's your euphoria moment then? Is it just before you begin? Is it at some point in the actual race? Is it is it actually
1: finishing? Is it being on the podium? When is it? certainly not during the race. I mean we were we were going well but it was it was about forty degrees on that day. I remember my lungs being on fire. It was so hot and it was such a such a hard hard race. I mean very, very physical. And afterwards I think I was just in maximum pain. Your your body feels like it's full of concrete, not blood. You're slowing down that much. I think when it sets in, we paddled in and saw our coach for the first time when I saw Jürgen. I mean, I haven't mentioned Jürgen yet. Jürgen Grobler was my coach through my senior years uh, in the team. Um, he's coached an Olympic gold medal at every Olympic since 1972. An absolute legend. I, I always looked up to him and the seniors like Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinson and James Cracknell from the previous generation to us. And I thought, Jürgen's coaching me and... We had such a wonderful relationship and coming off the water, he's the fifth man in the crew and giving him a hug. You know, it makes me feel now, you know, that's, that's when it sets in because uh, it was just wonderful. I think when your feet are back on the ground.
0: And what does it mean to actually be a world champion and to have that title after, like you say, feeling not necessarily
1: the best in the boats that you've competed up to that point? Um, Well, it's cool and I don't want to take it from anybody, uh, take it away from anyone who's pursuing that, but quickly, within a couple of sentences of exchanging with Jürgen and a hug and a handshake, um, and I'm going to ruin his accent here, but okay, Pete, (laughs) the the job is not done. And immediately, (laughs) you you know, for us, uh, it's all about the Olympics and... We had we had two more seasons to go before we even attacked the the Olympic season, and as soon as he says that, okay, pizza job is not done. We celebrated, but we knew that there was a lot of hard work to do, and we we were at the standard that year. But if we'd stayed at that standard, we wouldn't have won in Beijing. So um, that that's when you know there's more to do. But I'd love to move on to
0: your third moment that made you. The moment that I personally remember very vividly, London 2012. You won a gold medal at your home Olympic Games. Before we actually get to you being in the boat, what were your memories and thoughts going into that actual Games and knowing it was going to be colossal and you were going to be part
1: of it? I think at my best, I was thinking, I was so proud. I was so proud anyway, but at my best, I was thinking, there is so much pressure on us and we've, we've... earned the right to feel this much pressure you know we just a couple of months before we broke the world record in the Coxless 4 the the crew were at our peak at a home olympics and we were looking after Jürgen's unbeaten run as well the the home nation expects you know they um people don't know much about rowing but they know that we win at the olympics and that. That comes with an extraordinary amount of pressure because for us, it wasn't a done deal at all. There was a very, very fast top boat selected from Australia and they'd beaten us as well in uh, just a couple of weeks before. So we knew it was a two horse race and we knew that a silver was a real possibility. So the pressure was extraordinary. What we did know was that we were very, very fast. We'd had a good couple of trading camps um, and the attitude of we've earned the right to feel this much pressure was a real relief because you think not many people in the world ever get to feel this much pressure and what this is like. So let's just lap it up. And as the days got closer to our final, you know, we, we raced through the semi-final was a big race for us. That was against our main rivals, Australia, and we beat them in that race. Um, So they were the last people that we really wanted to feel like we'd, we'd beaten. But in those days, um, we heard, and Jurgen was saying as well. Maybe the Australians were playing games. Maybe they let you win in the last few strokes, so the final was still on. It was enormous pressure, and the day the day that we got up for our final it was the fourth of August in twenty twelve, of course. And I just remember thinking, looking at Tom James and Alex Gregory uh, and Andy. We, I mean, I wouldn't swap anyone in the world for any one of those guys and I thought bring it on you know c- come and have a go Australia and it, our warm-up was great uh, I remember stretching in the tent and I was listening to I was listening to Elgar's Nimrod on my headphones so loud that Alex told me to turn it down um he was stretching in the corner looking pale and nervous and I know that when Alex is like that he's getting ready um, I looked over at Tom James who was very frowny and focused and making shapes with his hands to uh, almost perfect his rowing stroke, even when he was stretching in in the tent. So I knew he was ready. And Andy was pacing around just when he's at his best. I know what he looks like. And he was ready. And then it started to rain. And it was raining that day, it poured over the crowds and I saw Australia run past our tent out in the rain thinking, yeah, they don't like rain. Um, we on, <laughs> and, and we had a great warm up. Um, and even sitting on the start line, I thought, that "There's nowhere I'd rather be." I was sitting there, just thinking, "Lap it up and come on!" Uh, and the race was um, one of our very best. It was just we 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 were perfect in that race, and I think Australia were as well. It was a drag race. The two of us, we didn't make any mistakes. There wasn't twing and throwing. We we started level, and then we just creaked out to about half a length and, and, and the roar from the crowds, I think you can feel that on the start line. Uh, and if you watch the race back, you can hear as, as, the boat, as the umpire calls Great Britain, you can hear the roar from two kilometres away come up in support of us. And we knew that that was for us and we knew that Australia knew that it was for us as well. And that gives you a lift. That's what home advantage is. And um, I remember coming through 500 metres to go. So the last minute and a half of the race, the, I was doing the calls and the crew couldn't even hear me. It was so loud. And it was like, you can't hear the thuds. You can't hear the water. It was like we were flying. And the, it, just the most extraordinary race and feeling. And do, getting that right at home and leaning back to Alex afterwards. I leant back to Alex because he became Olympic champion for the first time. Um And he did again in Rio, but he, he gave me a hug and said, uh, we get gold post boxes. First thing he said to me afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) I I had no idea. He he was made up. We had a hug. We looked around the crowd was just, the grandstand was packed. It was union flags everywhere. We couldn't hear ourselves. I shed a tear. Um, And you think, just thank goodness for that. we got that right. That was amazing.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's, uh, what what kind of surprises me about what you're talking about is you you are phenomenally present when you're in the boat. Is in you're clearly not blocking out what's going on. You are acutely aware of how you are feeling at that moment in time. Do you recall ever thinking, "Am I almost thinking too much about the crowd, the the feeling, rather than the
1: process"? If that makes sense, uh, visualization is a a really good. um preparation method okay you can't sit on the olympic start line so many times in your life and maybe you only get the chance to once but before you run up to it for for all the athletes that are perhaps watching use visualization for the years and months and weeks and days and hours before your race to just go over what it might feel like because you can you can mentally rehearse and it's like free training so that when you do get there, it doesn't feel like the first time. If you really visualize what it might be like and where cameras would be and what the smells are like, then when you're there, that's business as usual. And I noticed the birds. I mean, one moment I thought there was some, um, I thought, I would give anything to be that bird and just not have this pressure. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Yeah. I thought I'm you, totally you, you lucky out. little, you lucky little boy, you don't know <laughs> what this pressure's like. Um, but you, you're, you're in the boat and, and there's no way I'd rather be. Um, so we were, we were ready. I think that's what it boiled down to. We were ready. And, um, and that's what training is. You don't, you don't do that in the six minutes on the day. You do that for countless hours over, over years, preparing for that race. So that when you get there, you know, you're not touchable. And I, I drew my strength off the other guys in the boat and off Jürgen. And I just thought, thank goodness they're in my crew. Thank goodness for that.
0: Do you, um, when you look back at the success that you've had in the boat and that, that GB have ultimately had in, in rowing, what do you put that down to? Because I think it's easy to almost take it for granted when you just think we're just good at rowing. It's what we do, but I'm not. On the front line, in the trenches, actually understanding what takes that success. We've got
1: we've got Jurgen to thank, actually, um, and we've we've probably got Steve Redgrave to thank as well. So there there are all sorts of different factors, and we've got the National Lottery to thank. I mean, these are these are these are key ingredients to success. But the, what I've mentioned so far, Steve Redgrave was so important because he set the standard and showed the rowers how to win, what the standard was, and that actually we're not here to get the kit. We're not here just to be a team and to make up numbers at the Olympics. The standard is winning, and this is how hard it is to do. And he he passed that on to Matthew Pinson. Of course, they are a partnership through 92 and 96 in the pair, and then again in um, Sydney when when Steve Redgrave won his fifth Olympic gold medal. But what we've had is this handing of a baton through Matthew and then through James and Tim and Ed Code, and then passing on to Steve Williams and me and Andy and Alex. And we've had this generational handover of, of success. Now, I've mentioned the men's cots four line there, but Steve Redgrave also set the standard that bled into this hierarchy of the women's crews. So... I should mention Catherine Granger as well, of course, setting the standard again, teaching Anna Watkins, teaching the women's side, teaching the, the lightweight side. And suddenly you get those 20 medals over three Olympics as opposed to one medal in 1996. Um, so, I mean, he's a God to me anyway, but big up Steve Redgrave and and thank goodness for Jürgen for keep, keeping us in a, in a hard honest training program where it was almost like the path was laid out before us we knew what we had to do the standard got raised every year because that's sport and okay let's see what we can do now
0: when you mentioned steve redgrave you were talking about a, a goat in, in in many senses of the word what don't we know about him because we obviously see the smiley chap we've seen the shots of him falling off an erg with, with struggling with his um diabetes saying if you see me in the boat again, shoot me. We've seen those couplets, those vox pops, but what don't we, because you know the man and almost his real heart. With any Olympic
1: champion, okay? All the Olympic champions that I've raced with and and champions I've raced in one with, all of us are very determined, but there's a very different mix of personality types. It's not just one personality that makes an Olympic champion. Very, very determined is an absolute must though. But every one of the the special guys has got something special about them. I think my one is just my lungs. I mean, I've got big lungs. Great. Um, And it gives me a little boost in the team. But everyone's got their special thing. Um, Steve's, I think it was his competitiveness. So, I mean, don't play him at Tiddlywinks. Just, just <laughs> forget, forget it. He's, even now. So we had a, a ceremonial row over at Henley a couple of years ago. And I had the privilege of rowing with Steve for the first time in, in a crew. And it was two eights paddling down the course at Henley Royal Regatta. And and it was a, a nod to the crowd. And everybody came to support Steve in the boat. He wanted to win that race. Now I was lucky to be in his crew. All of a sudden it wasn't just a, a paddle. He wanted to make sure he crossed the line first and and we knew about it as well and it was and it was Steve that got that going. So I mean just don't don't compete against him because um his competitive nature will get him through. He's an amazing man and a, a brilliant mentor and I think something for someone or I said something because like a it's almost like a, a um a Pinnacle, a, a, a something for us to look up to, um, but aren't we lucky that we have him on our team to aspire to and setting the standard? Five Olympic gold medals in rowing, and I say in rowing because we get one chance, maybe never again.
0: Yeah, it's but what I find quite interesting. I think you've sort of got a similar trait, and actually, all the GB rowers that I've met, there's a real underlying humility. With everything that happens even when in the past i was privileged enough to actually sit in the same boat as helen and heather and um it, it was it was just a wonderful sensation when i was with my colleague who's a not a rower and all of a sudden feeling the power that they get through the water and all i thought to myself is i need to drink this in just this this is i mean what a privilege but the respect that they had for all of their coaches the respect they had for their peers. It didn't matter that they were Olympic champions at that point. As far as they were concerned, they were just one of the cogs in that machine. And you diligently go through the process, do your job and be part of a bigger thing than yourself. And it seems that that's maybe something that Steve has kind of instilled because he's a very humble man himself.
1: Yeah, he is. I think um, that's the culture in rowing. I mean, cu- culture eats strategy for breakfast and we've got a very strong winning culture. Um and And thank thank goodness we do I think rowing it's the ultimate team sport. We do the same thing at the same time in the same way. No one in the crew is better than anyone else and if If someone comes new comes in, we all find out what they've got to bring to the party and learn there's we don't wear our we don't wear ranks on our shoulders or medals around our neck. You come back and it's a clean slate and I mean we do it together we win together and we lose together and I've lost enough to know that we do it as a team and when you win it's not one person's effort um it's it's a combined strength and I think that's a very strong culture in British rowing and I I know that will continue into into the future um and I'm thinking of the guys right now training for Tokyo 2021 with their own with their own amazing stories to tell and their own um hardships that they're going through at the moment but the culture's still there just because I'm not and just because Heather and Heather, are, he- Heather, and Heather aren't and, and Matt Pinson isn't and Hodgie isn't and Steve Redgrave isn't, they've got the baton now and the culture's the same, they'll be all right.
0: Pete, you know, um, I, what, it's, it's tough to kind of encapsulate this conversation and your sort of aura. And I, I hate the word inspirational because my normal response is, what is that person inspiring you to do if they are inspirational? And I think with yourself, it's you really are leading by example and teaching by example, whether it be on the boat, whether it be your daily challenge. I've learned so much just over this last hour talking to you. Thank you so much for your honesty and thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks, mate. It's, um, it's been my pleasure. It's nice to talk to you. I've really enjoyed, enjoyed the chat and the part about my, my spinal stroke is cathartic. It's really helpful for me uh, and I do appreciate that. And um, lovely to chat about Team GB. What a good time we had. And I'm looking forward to being a biggest fan um, f- from next year and, and onwards from there. You know, I, I watch and admire now.
0: Well, hopefully Tokyo, the success just continues. And um, that's partly down to yourself. Pete, thank you very much, mate. Thanks very much. Bye for now. Well, that was Pete Reed with the moments that made him. And we, of course, wish him all the best of luck with his continued rehab. What an impressive man, an athlete he is. Wow. Well, that was episode one. And I think it's safe to say that we're off to a strong start. We'd love it, though, if you shared our podcast on social media to really shine what I consider a well-deserved light on these amazing stories so that others can hear them as Well, well, next week, we'll be joined by the Gymnastic Sister Act of Becky and Ellie Downey to talk injury, selection disappointment, and their rise to the senior ranks of the British gymnastic scene. To get the episode straight to your phone, just subscribe to the podcast, and that way it will automatically download. Thank you very much for listening.